0: You can't help someone who doesn't want help, and everyone keeps saying, you know, that person's just got to reach the low point. But I think when it got to October and the company was shut down, suddenly there's a thousand livelihoods whose jobs all rely on, on Desiem, and you know, you think, okay, well maybe this is the low point. Let's try and do what we can to kind of save Desiem, and, and maybe Brandon actually needs some time away from Desiem, and maybe that will be the low point so we can kind of get the help he needs.
1: I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders. We uncover the raw personal stories of the world's greatest business people, the key turning points, biggest challenges, and most valuable lessons from their journeys, so you'll get inspiration and tangible ideas to succeed at life. I'm so excited to be sitting down today with Nicola Kilner, the co-founder and CEO of the massive beauty disruptor, DesiM. From the beginning, they weren't like any other cosmetic company. They acted more like a startup incubator, launching 10 brands in rapid succession. They did everything in-house, were transparent about their ingredients, and undercut the competition, most famously with their brand, The Ordinary, where the average product was just £6, and as you'd expect, it flew off the shelves. In 2018, Nicola's co-founder, Brandon, had a very public struggle with mental health, which made his position at the company untenable, and he was removed with Nicola named the sole CEO. Tragically, Brandon passed away in January 2019. Today, Desiem has over a 1,000 employees, sells over a product every second, and has 50 stores globally. Uh, Nicola, I think the right place to start is to say, obviously, very sorry for your loss. Um, we're obviously going to come onto it. He did sound like quite an extraordinary man, Brandon, so I'm looking forward to having that conversation. But before we start, if we can start on a on a light note, just to ease you into the conversation, um, we always start with a quick fire round. So, cats or dogs? Dogs. Boots or Walgreens? Boots. Beauty inside or out? Inside. Correct answer. Uh, films or music? Films. And being correct or being kind?
0: Being kind.
1: Yeah, I thought thought as much. Okay, and the last one. You're trapped on a desert island. You can take three things, and just to make this a bit less easy, assume the husband and two kids are there.
0: Oh, that's a very difficult one, and I'm the kind of person who has another hundred questions to define if there's electricity and if there's water and all the other things that I would need to know. But assuming the the infrastructure is there, I'd have to just take my phone because I have to be in contact with my mum and everyone else. I would take has to be a skincare product, I would probably take a uh, SPF because if I'm on a desert island, hoping it's hot, I think SPF would be the most important one. And then I'd probably have to take my daughter's comforter because I think she would uh, struggle to be without. So I would give my third item to her.
1: Very good. Yeah, very practical. I like it. I, th- I feel like you're going to survive most importantly. Okay, well, you started talking about your daughter. So let's start at your childhood then. What was that like?
0: So, I uh, grew up mum, dad, big sister. Um, My mum was a stay at home mum, so a very kind of happy family, probably quite a traditional upbringing. Uh, I was born in Sheffield in the northern. Third
1: guest on this show, third female guest on this show, actually, now I think about it, from Sheffield.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a good, very good city. And I. Well, that's
1: a real hit rate, actually. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I like, I mean I know there's, there's kind of people everywhere but I definitely think anywhere within the north just has this kind of sense of community family kindness I kind of was very happy growing up in Sheffield Um, I guess kind of had a heartbreak uh, in my uh, late teens when I lost my father and I think it knocked me back for six and I think it kind of probably built a lot of resilience which I think I have to kind of thank uh, for kind of some of the the work strengths that I potentially have now in terms of what we, we've we been through but I think losing a parent especially at quite a young age still in terms of just transitioning into adulthood was really difficult. My mum is by far my best friend I see her all the time uh, I'm very fortunate that even uh, you know in the last few years when I'm well since I've started doing Toronto trips monthly with her, my daughter obviously pre-COVID she would come on them with me she'd look after us, so we have a a very special bond but I think anyone who's lost a parent would know it's a pain in your heart that kind of lives forever really but I guess that was kind of growing up and I think I'd always had a big interest in business you know when I asked for books on my Christmas list it was usually an entrepreneur's autobiography uh back in the days when it was still paper books before podcasts I guess were really a thing uh loved watching Dragon's Den when I was a teenager on, on television all of those kind of I guess typical things probably growing up for someone who has an interest in business and I think part of my interest in terms of entrepreneurship was even though there was some risk wanting the kind of to have that control of your own destiny and kind of know that actually if you work really hard you can be in control of your own success but I went to university and I went to Nottingham and
1: also went to Nottingham yeah this is really this is weird (laughs)
0: Did you go yeah. to Trent, Trent or uni?
1: No, I went to uni.
0: Oh, I went to Trent. So um, oh,
1: okay. All right. Fair enough. So we are enemies, it turns out. Okay, good. Good. As you were.
0: Uh, but anyway, I we went to Nottingham Trent where they had quite a, um, what I think was probably quite a progressive uh, course where we did the first year studying and then year two and year three, you were sponsored by a blue chip organisation. So I was lucky to get a sponsorship from Boots. So then within my uh, second and third year at university, I did four different placements within Boots. One of them was actually working in store as a store manager. uh, And then the other three were in different areas of the business. And it was just a great exposure. And I think Boots is a fantastic company who really invests in their people and they really invest in development. So after I graduated, I stayed on um, at Boots. But whilst I was at Boots working as a beauty buyer, I was fortunate enough to meet Brandon. So he was at his previous beauty brand called Indeed Labs. And I think from the moment I met him at D90, for anyone who's ever visited Boots in Nottingham, I just was in his spell. He was just an incredible creative genius. He was kind, he had this amazing energy. I remember the first email he signed off as smiles, all of his emails always signed off smiles, Brandon. And you know, when you you open your inbox and you kind of, and again, this was back when I started working at Boots, we uh, only actually could access email whilst we were in the office. Uh, we didn't have it access uh, externally. So it was actually back in the days where you would get there, log onto your laptop and open up an inbox of everything that had come in overnight. And I would always go straight to Brandon's emails first because they were just the ones that would put a smile on my face. And so we did some amazing launches together, me working as a buyer and him at Indeed Labs. And I remember then the day when he left Indeed Labs almost being heartbroken thinking, I don't want this man to be out of my life because actually his passion, his energy, he was just kind of truly one of a kind person. I think anyone who met him just kind of felt that positive energy from him um, and I guess that was at a similar time when I was kind of starting thinking about actually I'd like to kind of do something different so I had a business idea that I wrote to, to Brandon about and kind of said look next time you're in London I'd love to talk to you and that was actually to create almost a trip advisor but for beauty because I found working in beauty I was often asked what's the best mascara what's the best skin serum etc and so I met him to talk about that and he was like I love the idea let's do it together I've got a background in software let's do that but then at the same time I want to start this thing called Desiem I want to disrupt it will you do this with me too I decided instantly it would be the best decision of my life and uh, thankfully that proved to, to be right so um I left that year and then joined Desiem and we uh, started working on Beautywise too but I think that never actually got off the ground because Desiem just shot through the roof um you know I think from the moment kind of Desiem was created so Desium from the Latin word for the number 10. And it was all about building 10 brands at once. And the reason behind that thinking was because whenever you launch a new brand, it's so difficult to predict if it's going to have any success you know, you can do consumer groups, you can get feedback, people will say, I love the packaging, I love the concept, you put it on the shelf, and no one buys it. It's just the the reality of trying to predict what people want. And I know Brandon, having had previous beauty businesses, he really wanted to bring everything in house, he wanted to do our own manufacturing, he wanted to do our own design, do our own PR, and so on. And he said, well, if we build 10 brands, effectively, each brand has to just pay for 10% of that person's salary or 10% of that resource so actually we can be a lot more cost effective at launching brands to really see what's going to kind of work with with consumers and again bringing production in-house I mean that was a huge investment and to actually set up our own factory get our own machinery without really knowing what quantities there might be or if any success was going to come our way but again it was this realization that I think for a lot of brands stock can often create a lot of bad decision making, because again, you predict that actually we have product A, everyone's going to love this product, let's order 100,000 units when actually everyone wants product B. So then you're stuck with loads of stock that people don't really want. Whereas if you can kind of create to demand, you know, do small runs to begin with, you can actually follow what the audience want and almost kind of build a brand that's kind of focused around demand uh, rather than having to push your supply because you've already made commitments back in the the decim early days of 2013 it was a daily mail article in the UK where if they spoke about your product sales exploded whereas now it seems to be if a product goes viral on TikTok that's what explodes sales so uh, but I mean the thing that I guess both scenarios have in common is that unpredictable you don't know which product it's going to be you don't know when it's going to land but you know it's going to be a big success and if you sell out and you don't have any product for another six months if you're relying on a third-party manufacturer it's so hard to kind of ever get get that momentum back so just bringing it in has felt right um so the idea was to build 10 brands at once and it's a good job we didn't stop at 10 because the ordinary was our 11th brand to launch so if we would stopped at 10 we never would have had the ordinary we've launched a lot of brands that actually didn't truly work so now at the moment we have five brands in the portfolio so six brands we uh, reduced down some kind of merge into other brands so we just put to rest and we have concepts for more brands to come so Desian will keep being this incubator and I think what's great is now that we have this ecosystem it is fairly efficient for us to create new brands one of the challenges we've had in the last couple of years is because the ordinary has just exploded we haven't necessarily had the resource to be the incubator but it's something that we definitely want to focus on again in the coming years
1: so if you're a young entrepreneur And you're listening to this story, and obviously hugely motivating. But the first question you're going to ask is, but you know, let's talk about this investment then because cash is king. So what kind of investment are we talking? How did you go about getting the investment? Did Brandon already have all these contacts? You know, just just take us through that, that first part of the journey.
0: So the, the initial investment came from a very amazing man based from Vancouver, Pasquale, and um, who had previously been um, an investor in something Brandon had done before Indeed Labs. So Brandon already had that relationship and Pasquale already had the trust in Brandon. So I think it was probably a relatively easier ride than I think perhaps for other for people out there, because again, this wasn't Brandon's first business. So he already had that track record, which meant it was easier to secure. So even though we had cash, again, like any startup, we didn't particularly have money to burn. And I think one of the areas which we very much was a conscious decision to save money on, and I actually think it created Desium as the company it is today, was that we couldn't afford to hire experienced people because actually experience normally is higher salaries. So the idea was actually just hire people straight from college, but let's get kind of that energy and actually let's kind of teach people because actually maybe if we want to do things differently, how valuable is experience um, in some of the fields we're in today. Uh, so that was probably one of the areas where we had to make a conscious decision that actually if people have got a good personality, let's bring them into the team. And we have had the most, you know, amazing uh creative director, and um, I mean even Prudvy, who's our chief scientific officer who does every kind of product is he is behind Pridvi. he joined us on i think more or less minimum wage working in the in in the lab he was the second person to join the lab he now runs a team of over 100 people within the scientific area he is a genius he runs every area from quality to clinical to microbiology to R&D and I think it's just been amazing seeing these people really grow within the business and you know as we've grown we have had to bring in experience particularly within I guess the more traditional fields of finance oh, you know, strategy, and operations yeah. supply chain uh, but definitely from kind of the creative and the brand and partnerships that side uh, has always been kind of a somewhat inexperienced team who actually just got this incredible passion and commitment and loyalty and new ideas of doing things differently and i think it really played a role in our success
1: Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com/secretleaders. That's v a n t a.com/secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Now, there's a great chance you'll have heard of today's guests if you're into skincare and pay attention to your beauty regime. But why not pick up a brain care regime too by starting your day with Heights Smart Supplement? It's plant-based, sustainably sourced, and feeds the brains of great minds from Stephen Fry and Alan de Botton to multiple guests on Secret Leaders. So you can get started too with £10 off a quarterly subscription with the code LEADERS at yourheights.com. Now back to today's guest. Are you able to share what your investment journey has been like to get you to this state? Was it just one investment round of X? Were there multiple?
0: So to begin with, it was funded by Pasquale um, and and Brandon. And then in 2017, we uh, knew that we needed more money. We had just launched The Ordinary at the end of 2016, and we could kind of start to see that actually we're going to have to scale up quite significantly. So we started that process in 2017, uh, working with um, a London-based bank firm uh, called Baylor Klein, uh, who specialised within the beauty industry. We met with many different private equity groups. We met with a couple of conglomerates too. Uh, We got very close to signing with a private equity group when SA Lauder companies came in at the very last minute so our first meeting with them was in April uh, when they flew to Toronto they saw at the facility they had a kind of first meeting together and I think there was just this mutual connection where they actually are a very family company uh, with Leonard there William there they very much believe in family values and they believe obviously in the the value of Incubator in the value of brands. They probably are ultimately one of the best beauty brand companies in in the world. This
1: is almost word for word how Joe Malone described her experience with uh, with Estee Lauder as well. Funny enough,
0: well, they definitely blew us away. So they they came to Toronto in April, and then we went to New York. We met with Leonard, uh, who was just inspiring in every way. We met with Fabrizio. We had just this this incredible energy, and I think from the very first meeting to the deal being signed was less than. Um, Well, we met them in April and it it signed on June 17th. It was eight weeks from the first meeting to closing, which I think they said was a a record speed in terms of, you know, due diligence, contracts, paperwork, everything happening in just eight weeks. But I think both sides just felt like actually this was the, the kind of partnership that was meant to be. And I know, you know, all the conversations that Brandon and I had was, S.A. Lauder company should be the final home for Desi. I'm like, it's it's probably what many beauty entrepreneurs would dream of ultimately kind of landing home with them. And again, I'm I'm sure we'll get onto the hard times, but we couldn't have asked, I think, for a more supportive partner from day one to, to kind of where we are now. And I think they've always had so much because they have so much respect for brands. They very much encourage us to kind of just keep doing what we're doing. They are a minority investor, so they're very hands off. But they're also at the end of the phone, if we ever want to kind of ring for a contact or to kind of ask them something that we're not sure on.
1: Okay, what was it like to work with Brandon? And this is over the whole period, because I guess, you know, you've got mixed experiences. There's highs, there's lows, and a lot of listeners have zero context.
0: It was incredible. It was also very high maintenance. And I think for... You know, for anyone who's who's probably worked with a founder or worked in in a startup environment, it often is very high pressured. It's it was never Monday to Friday. It was twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. It was, and I love that because you know, ultimately, if you're passionate and you're in that exciting stage, you are living and breathing it. And you, every time something happens, you kind of want to be a part of it. But it's definitely a high pressured environment and you know working with someone like Brandon he was so extremely passionate and that had incredible highs where actually you would work until the early hours to just really perfect something but there's also the challenges of that when actually when something goes wrong there can be quite a lot of sensitivity around that so it could be kind of ups and downs but I think anyone who spent time with Brandon you just were inspired like he was a genius, and you know, I think a lot of people often say there's a, there's a very fine line between kind of, well, actually, Brandon used to say this as well, between genius and between crazy. And I think he always used to try and just kind of stay stay in the middle bit of that. But he was, I think anyone who would meet him say he was a genius. He loved his team more than anything. He really classes all his family. And, you know, we saw that all the way through in, in many examples, even after he passed away, him much truly saw his work team as his, as his core family. He just lived and breathed Decium and we lived and breathed and people just loved being around him and he he always wanted to make it fun he always said he didn't be, be at the company after it reached 100 million dollars in sales because that's when it would get boring and that's the part he didn't enjoy and I think he always said it's a part where because I guess I had the boots background I was definitely a lot more corporate than Brandon uh, was so he always used to joke that was my side and his side was kind of the crazy stuff and he'd go and start the next thing and then I would kind of transfer and we'd kind of work that way uh, but I think you know just a a huge deep love for Brandon and I know all of our our team felt that way too and we we miss him we talk about him all the time we celebrate him we have areas in the office of pictures he'd commissioned to purchases he'd make the furniture in Amsterdam and just all of these memories but he's very much alive I think in in many of our team and again it's fortunate that many of our founding team is still with the business today so we still have a lot of people who spent much time with Brandon working at Desium.
1: It's also interesting because you're a co-CEO, I'm a co-CEO, the founders of Karma co-CEOs. There's lots of examples of co-CEOs and then there's always you know lots of public discourse about how it doesn't work. Um, what was your experience of it? You know, you're a sole CEO now, so how do you compare your ability to make decisions? Do you think it's easier? Do you think that you miss that sort of behavior of challenging each other over decisions? Love your perspective.
0: I definitely miss just... Having Brandon, to, you know, someone to just, I think that dialogue, the kind of push back and forth and just the the creative exchange, um, I definitely miss. And, you know, Brandon ultimately, I mean, our, our relationship is probably different. He was CEO and I was co-CEO. So ultimately if he wanted something different, he would still say, that's my decision. Although there'd be a lot of times where, you know, I'd have an opinion and he'd say, you know, F you, da, da, da no, sorry, he'd say, no, you're absolutely wrong. And then he'd call me 30 minutes later and say, F you, actually, you're right. We'll we'll do it your way now. So he definitely was someone who liked to reflect before coming around. But again, you know, I think it's just this difference in the business where, um, and you know, Brandon used to say this all the time where kind of our skills would complement each other was that he was the crazy creative genius. I, you know, obviously had a few years experience from Boots was probably more calm. And he always used to say like, he's the best person to take a company from off the ground zero to that first 10 million, but he never could be the person to kind of take it to the next level because he has no interest in in kind of building structure. You know, Brandon would just want to say, hey, you, let's go to Japan for fun. But then when you actually get to a size of over a 1,000 employees, it's not as easy to kind of do those things without hurting someone and someone feeling disrespected, and should they be there? And, and, you know, all of the challenges that come when you get a little bit bigger. But I guess kind of how it is now, I think, you know, I, in terms of, so at the moment, there's three of us at C-level. So I'm CEO, Stephen's COO, and then Pridvi is CSO. But I really see us as three equals because, you know, it's interesting being a CEO. I often say if, if the job came up as a CEO at a company with, you know, we have about 2,000 employees actually, including different agency workers we have, we'll be close to about half a billion dollars in revenues. There's no way I'd ever get this job as CEO because I am extremely unqualified uh, in many ways that a CEO should, uh, lack many CEO skills. But I think in terms of DCM legacy, history, brand, people, I believe that I'm I'm obviously the right person to kind of be the leader of that organization. But it's interesting because I think, you know, traditionally in your career, uh, especially in kind of your early stages, you're always, more experienced than the person who's below you typically you know you kind of get promoted that way you kind of help support other people so it's a strange position then to be in where actually everyone who reports into you uh, even that level at the VP level uh, and the director level are actually far more knowledgeable experienced experts in their fields than I could ever be well, one of the things that I did with Stephen and prudby was actually aligned all of our salaries. So actually the three of us are on exactly the same salary to really kind of make it feel like actually there's almost three of us. And I think, you know, ultimately owns the decisions that sit within the scientific department and I would want him to overrule me on a decision about the science at Desium because that's his field, not mine. And I trust, just as Brandon trusted him, that he is the expert, Stephen I'm not going to challenge him on something to do with finance or operations, because ultimately that's his field. And I think, you know, my role, I think, as a CEO is, is kind of the, the conductor of the orchestra who's kind of keeping everyone in tune, going in the right way. Um, I love the people side of the role. Um, I think just kind of connecting with the team. I try and do we have a thriving online communications platform where i do videos there each week where the whole team can go on and see so all thousand people can get updates what's happening in the business everyone can talk to each other those are the things that i really love doing kind of working with the teams um and then you know my focus has always been more on the brand side on the partnerships on the retailers on our stores uh, but i think actually just kind of being a team feels much more suited to my style than feeling like I'm being paid more when actually they're, I think they're far more, they definitely have been using brain supplements, I think.
1: And what was it like? I mean, you talked, you know, you launched in 2013, in 2017, you took this money from Estee Lauder, but 2018 was really the difficult year for you guys, right? So can you actually explain to listeners what it was like to be at SEM in 2018?
0: So twenty eighteen was an extremely difficult year, and it somewhat happened overnight. there were, there were a few things that started to happen towards the end of twenty seventeen, where you know you start to just get an inkling that something's changing, and then we we all went away for the the holidays. And I would actually gone to uh, New Zealand for, for, for Christmas. Uh, and then my plan, I'd got to Australia in that first week of January, I had all, all meetings planned. And I remember on January 1st, Brandon ringing me and telling me, you have to go straight to the airport, get the next flight to Toronto, cancel all your meetings. You just need to come here. And I remember just getting there and and just having this overwhelming of feeling of, wow, things have changed and... I don't necessarily think it's, it's for good. And I think, you know, it's one of the really hard balances. And I think, you know, we've tried to learn a lot around uh, about mental health since we went through 2018. And, and it's something I'd actually love to know further. You know, this, this difficult balance, I think, between people who are very who we'd call the geniuses and this kind of extreme creativity and then often I think there is correlation sometimes with sometimes kind of more mental health challenges and how do we help protect those people who are sometimes kind of we see this one part and then there's a potential risk as well but it happened quite quickly and you know we had a very tough trip at that that kind of beginning of January
1: so, sorry, he called you and said, come to Toronto, and you did?
0: Yep, so I, I went to, straight to Toronto. Uh, he called a few of the team together, and there were just messages that were being said. And again, because it happened more or less overnight, it was trying to define, is this a genius talking to us where we maybe can't quite grasp this concept yet? Or actually, is this someone who's who's kind of in difficulty? And Because we hadn't seen any of these traits over the last, you know, six years, it was a very difficult time to to navigate and, you know, for anyone who's been around someone who's perhaps suffering from mental health challenges, it's almost like you're both speaking the English language, but one of you speaking Russian because you just can't understand what each other is saying, even though you're having a conversation where the words should be exchanged in, in a normal way, but actually it's just so far from that. That was kind of the start of it, I guess, a worrying kind of...
1: What was the crux of that meeting? Were you able to decipher what you were called there for? Or was the fact that you weren't able to decipher what was the urgent necessity that was in itself the wake-up call?
0: you know the, the I guess an example that stuck with me was Brandon telling us that he wasn't going to have a cell phone anymore that's kind of the example where because Brandon was such a genius you you kind of listen to his reasons and you think well actually it does make sense sometimes we are all now addicted to our cell phones we're not living in the present maybe we would have more time in, in those things but then also it was you know for someone who is running a big business and has all of these responsibilities it's it's also not a normal thing to say, I'm suddenly going to throw my cell phone away and turn my emails off and not be contactable. So it was kind of things like that, which were kind of, I guess, just difficult to navigate. And especially because it had been such a quick change from being the brand that we've kind of, we had known for the last few years in December, and then suddenly in January, you know, the the holiday break was perhaps two weeks and then kind of just seeing such a, a vast difference. And then there were kind of things that then then came in the next couple of months. There was terminations of brand partnerships, but communicated on Instagram before even the person we were terminating or or the team were told about it, terminating partnerships like we had just launched with Sephora that got canceled. And and things that just weren't natural to Brandon's behavior and also weren't natural if someone who had this responsibility of of running um, the company. And I guess, you know, my exit from the company was in, in in February. And that was, you know, after probably five weeks, I think, of this kind of erratic behaviour. And, and me kind of chatting. And I remember waiting for Brandon to kind of come to, to London so I could see him in person. And kind of just having that conversation around, like, what's happening? Is everything OK? And again, for anyone who has been around someone um, who, is, who is suffering, you'll often know if you try to help that person, you're the first one pushed out. And that's what makes it so difficult when you you can see someone who you believe needs help, you want to help them, you want to support them. But if you try and help and support them, you often get pushed away. Um, and it was a really difficult time. And, you know, there was lots of legal issues because he would do things that he wasn't allowed to do in, in the constraints of the business. But when you do have someone acting erratically, whatever board reports and and legal things say, it doesn't change the fact that that behaviour is happening. So I I left in in February, but I was very much connected to the team the whole time. But why
1: why did you leave?
0: Brandon fired me.
1: What was that like? I mean, let's talk about that. Was that a shock to you? I appreciate, in retrospect, as far as I can see, you're just an incredibly happy, smiley, person with really great energy and you've gone in there to talk to your friend who's the CEO and your co-founder and he's fired you was that a shock was there something expected like how did that literally that moment and that hour if you can recap what was that like what was going through your mind
0: I think it was a because we've gone through this again it was, it was probably five or six weeks of just this erratic behavior happening, I think it almost actually gave me the tick box to say actually, because again, with mental health, it's something that's not easily diagnosed. And it's something where you question yourself, does he seem poorly? Or actually, am I just not understanding things? And you kind of because... You know, within the erratic behavior, you also have normal conversations. It's it's a very up and down process. And I think when that happened, it almost gave me the reassurance that said, actually, I know this is not Brandon, because every conversation we've had, like just everything we've been through, this scenario would never happen. So I think if anything, it gave me comfort from the sense that actually... What I'm thinking is correct. Like he, he he does need help because actually this is is not kind of a normal behavior. I think probably a sense of relief because I mean at that at that point I was not sleeping. I was having stress headaches. You know it's a very difficult time. And actually you know I had a good talk with um, a doctor from uh, Camh in, in Toronto, the the center for addiction and mental health. And you know she was saying actually for those of people who are around someone who is suffering. You have to actually also look after yourself to be able to look after them. But again, when you're just thrown in this situation, it's it's a difficult thing, I think, to kind of get that balance and, and that understanding of of how it how it works. And so I think I mean just just shock, worry for actually how can I help him now? Because I'm not even in the circle anymore. I'm now on the outside. And then I think, you know, it was a really hard couple of months because I was hearing again terrible stories from people in, in the team. I was seeing pictures of suddenly private jets and all the new people who he'd never traveled before. Like you were saying, the yes people who were just in this bubble. And it's just so hard to watch and also just feeling powerless. And I think, you know, the other thing that I think makes... I mean, mental health challenges have always been difficult, but we were also having the Instagram impact of, you know, Brandon would, who had never really been on Desium's Instagram, had never really been that front-facing, was suddenly putting videos up on the Instagram channel. And, and again, you know, we had a partnership with um dr esho and he just terminated the the contract with dr esho on instagram and you know watching all of these things unfold was really difficult and again then you read the comments and you have people saying why is no one helping him he's clearly you know not very well and again you're reading that as like thinking gosh we're all desperate to help him but and i say the world because actually he got sectioned in 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 different countries and actually I think part of the challenge is the Canadian health authorities don't talk to the UK health authorities. You don't talk to the US health authorities. So someone, especially who has got the means uh, and the funds to actually travel, especially by private uh, means, they always escape the system. And it's just so difficult to help someone you love when, when they're suffering from mental health. You know, if someone has cancer, you have a test, you get the diagnosis, there's a plan that that's there that you can kind of take. Whereas mental health is just such a difficult area to navigate through.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine, and I think, didn't you mention that you're, you one of your kids is two.
0: Yeah. So I, so I left in, in February and then we conceived her in the March. And I guess again, you know, an interesting thing, I think back to one of the conversations I had with Brandon in, in early February and he was actually in tears on the phone to me. And he said, you know, I, I know how desperate you are for, for children and a family. And I I worry that you're prioritizing Decium over having children. And, you know, you must just kind of do that. And, and again, you know, there's different things around, you think back why. And I think part of it was because I was obviously one of the ones saying, are you okay? Kind of what's happening. And I also think there was another element of he truly had the kindest heart out of anyone you could hope to meet and i think he he did want me to kind of follow my dreams of having a baby and i think you know he was right it's a it's always a difficult challenge of when's the right time to start having a family when you're still in the startup fast growing there's so much work to do
1: in fairness when you're fired is a great time
0: it was a perfect timing. you know my husband and i we went and had a couple of months in ibiza in the summer um so, you know, we, we kind of made the most of our, our time together. Um, and then, you know, Brandon, he'd been in touch through the, the whole period. Um, but I think it was in June when, I, again, I was still in the Ibiza, when he was ringing me in tears, saying, please come back, please help me. And I felt like he'd recognised that. And again, it's difficult because everyone always says you have to reach the low point. And I feel like he had reached that point where actually he kind of wanted to to relook at things and kind of, get things moving in the right way again. And again, you know, Brandon and I, it wasn't just a work relationship. We called ourselves family. And you know, you, you're the family you pick and, and the bonds were there. And if if someone you love needs you, you go back without kind of questioning it. So I um as soon as I got back from Ibiza, I kind of went back in the beginning of July.
1: Six months pregnant.
0: Yes. <laughs> and it just became Apparent that actually things were probably worse than ever. And again, you know, the team had kept me updated on on a few things, but I think until you're experiencing it firsthand, it's hard to, I think, sometimes really digest how how bad things had got and how quickly it was really escalating.
1: And had he been contacting you in the since March to six months in to uh, September?
0: Yes. So, yeah. So from, I guess, from when I left in February, there was kind of communication. Some of it was, um, again, I I did a a lot of reading during the time uh, and I can't, I think the the term was word salad, uh, where kind of you would get an email and actually none of it really made sense. So there was quite a lot of that happening. Um, But again, you'd also have moments of, of love in there and him sharing his deep love and how sorry he was. And, you know, he wanted things to get back to the way they were. So then when I went back in July, it then became clear that actually things weren't going to get better. So then it was trying to get that difficult balance between working with with the team on the business because, you know, at this point, Sephora had been terminated, brand partners had been terminated. There were kind of various business things that wouldn't make sense that were happening. So trying to kind of get control on some of those areas, but then at the same time, trying to help the person that I loved get the help that they needed and again there were lots of highs and lows in that period and I think you know it it kind of reached the crooks at the beginning of of October when I was seven months pregnant when he he shut the whole company down and he said you know we the SEM was shutting down there was accusations flying around um and you know at that point and again, you know, we can maybe talk a little bit, but I think, you know, in terms of Lord Esser, Lord Companies, Pasquale, the the invest, investors and the board members, they had been so supportive through the whole process. And again, it's always trying to find that fine line of, you know, ultimately, you can't help someone who doesn't want help. The systems just aren't set up in 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 that way. So everyone was desperate to help him, but you don't know the way it does. And everyone keeps saying, you know, that person's just got to reach the low point. But I think when it got to October and the company was shut down, suddenly there's a thousand livelihoods whose jobs all rely on, on dcm And, you know, you think, okay, well, maybe this is the low point. Let's, let's try and do what we can to kind of save Desiem. And, and maybe Brandon actually needs some time away from Desiem. And maybe that will be the low point so he can kind of get the help he needs. So that's when, you know, Brandon was removed. And I think I had about two weeks left that I could fly before um, the kind of no fly part of pregnancy comes on. So I I went straight to Toronto, kind of met with a team. And one of the things I did, so Stephen Kaplan, who was our CFO in 2017, he left again in, in 2018 with all of the difficulties that was happening. But I knew he was needed uh, for the business because um, as much as, you know, the creativity and all of that side kind of lived with, with Brandon and kind of what I worked on, Stephen, we needed a very good finance and operational person to just help the scale of the business that i grown. Uh, so I met with Stephen uh, whilst I was in Toronto and he agreed to come back and he's really been everything you could hope for or in terms of kind of scale up the business. And I know Brandon had a huge respect for him too. So it was also nice bringing someone back who I knew, Brandon, the Brandon that we kind of remembered pre-2018 uh, would have always said, you know, he's the one that will help us get to the scale that we want to achieve.
1: And before we get to, you know, um, what happened from that moment of 2018, two questions. One, what happens when you shut down a company of a thousand people overnight?
0: Well, I think by that point, you know, the erratic behavior had been so public on the Instagram channel on kind of emails with various people involved that I think, you know, there was a sense of, of when and again, this was communicated on Instagram, I think there was a sense of everyone was worried about Brandon and everyone kind of knew actually this, the company can't just shut down like this is just not the way that business can work. And, you know, we had um, a strong team of of leaders in, in Toronto who kept going in, they kept the doors open. Um, I think, you know, we, we gave, we shut kind of production and stuff for a day, but then quite quickly, you know, we gave everyone the confidence because again, everyone's in this fear zone of if I go in, will I get terminated? Because again, terminations were kind of flying around uh, in 2018, not in a very pleasant way. So I think you know there was a lot of fear within the company, and I think you know again Steve and myself, a few a few other people, it was kind of trying to just kind of calm people that actually we're, we're going to get through this. We had a couple of um, legal things because I think when when the stores were threatened to close, obviously with landlords, there's quite strict. Uh, Points in the leases that you can't shut retail i think other than christmas day so yeah we had a few but i think because it was resolved quite quickly and i think because the behavior had been so public i think there was probably quite a bit of patience from from different stakeholders involved and and ultimately with the team i think it was just a great sadness and just a worry for someone that everyone loved of of actually you know even for someone who didn't know brandon is we're all humans it's not nice to watch anyone suffer and also just i think everyone including our, our audience and our customers everyone just felt so helpless
1: and obviously you know what people do in their private life is generally you know up to them uh from the ceo downwards and you guys you know have kindness as a you know as a seeming value for sure so what did you do personally um and what were the team reactions when there were reports about him doing drugs openly in the office and how do you even approach the conversation in the first place with someone that won't engage in the concept of it being a rational behavior?
0: And again, I think that was the the hard point in that time period is trying to get that balance between, can you look after someone more if you're if you're there or do you challenge the behavior and know you're kind of instantly out? So it was kind of trying to get this fine balance of actually trying to kind of stay within Decian because- that was the way I felt I could help the team the most because when I was kind of out it was difficult because there's there's even less you can do when you're around but also at the same time trying to kind of help that person who who is there and I think you know the the drug abuse I think it was you know Brandon would share his kind of views on on it and you know in the press and, and further more so than him actually doing I think things in, in front of colleagues I think that kind of got taken slightly out of context along along the way of what was reported. But, you know, it was a difficult time. And again, I think everyone was trying to find this balance of ultimately Desian was Brandon's legacies. It was his child. And, you know, even when he was removed in October, it was a temporary order. And everyone had this sense of, look, it's temporary. He's gonna come back. Let's keep Desium going so that when Brandon can get the help he needs and get back to, you know, the, I don't know what the right word is, but the, the pre-2018 Brandon. Desium his baby's there he can come back he can get all the creativity again and so I think it was always just trying to get the balance between kind of keeping Desi and going and trying to kind of be there for Brandon because again a lot of us were getting independent advice and people tell you all the time you just have to wait for the person to want help and it's an area that I really want to explore more um, and I know you yourself have kind of interest in, in mental health because it's it's just such a difficult situation to be in, you know, someone's saying you just have to wait for them to reach rock bottom. And what if they never do? Or, you know, in Brandon's case, ultimately, the it ended in the worst possible way.
1: Well, exactly. And it's really like call, calling the bottom, just like in the markets, you know, calling the bottom is impossible. No one, no one has a good hit rate on that. Well, what did happen then from the moment of you flown to Toronto? You mentioned you brought him back. So is this the period where you guys were co-CEOs? So steering the ship together?
0: Well, so I was co-CEO from, from the beginning. Um when I came back in October, then I was sole CEO. Stephen came back as COO. And, you know, he, he was kind of helping to scale because just the vol, and again, you know, it's it was difficult because I think you know the ordinary had just launched, but then also we were getting so much press coverage about what was happening, and you know it's sad to say, but actually it was probably driving our sales even higher because we suddenly were even more in the, in the public eye than we perhaps were before. So Stephen really took control of scaling up the business, sorting the infrastructure. You know, there was various things that we we almost fallen a year behind uh, because it was so difficult to get things progressing in some areas during the difficult times. I focused a lot more on the people. So there were various people that again had left in 2018 who were founding team members who were Brandon's closest uh, friends and, and, you know, what he would see as his family and who were caught to DCM and, um, and bringing back those people was very important. But again, you know, people were hurt. There was, a very difficult sensitive year for for so many of the teams so i think kind of trying to give them the confidence of look let's come back hopefully brandon's going to be back with us when he's better let's look after it for him let's continue this legacy we've we've all dedicated and sacrificed so much to get decium to where it is let's make sure that actually it survives this and we kind of get it to the the next stage. And um, so my focus was definitely really around at uh, the people side. Um, and then also I guess trying to give confidence back to some of our, our partners. Um, and you know, people that had, had I guess been burnt along the way.
1: But obviously sadly it didn't end, you know, with this like hauling the bottom and actually being able to help bring them back. So what what happened and can you if you don't mind like actually sharing with listeners, you know, how did you find out what was, what was that day like? And, you know, one of the most valuable things that listeners can learn from this conversation and hope to never have to practice is how to communicate with a crisis. I'd personally find it valuable. And I know that other listeners would, so if you don't mind, sorry, to make you recount such a horrible memory, but it'd be just so valuable for people.
0: So it was a Monday morning and um, Dion had received a press inquiry um, from a journalist in Canada who said that they had heard a report that Brandon had passed away and could we confirm if it was true Um, and we hadn't heard anything about this so I um, rang Stephen and said and you know I was very much thinking Surely this is, you know, this is nothing we'd have heard. Um, So I said to Stephen, dion has got this inquiry. Do you think you can just find somehow if if there's any truth to it? So Stephen said, on the way to the office, I'll go via Toronto police station and and just kind of ask. And then when he got to the police station and they confirmed that he had passed away on the day before, on, on the Sunday morning... And I remember Stephen ringing me and I was actually breastfeeding my daughter at the time. And I just remember that shock of it can't be true. And even though, you know, someone is, you know, someone's been spiraling out of control for, for a year now, it'd been 12 months. You still just don't expect it to happen. You don't expect it to suddenly end. And then I think just realizing, you know, does, does his partner know, does, like who knows about this like and actually if the press have already got hold of it that means it's suddenly going to be in the news and you know how sadly bad news always seems to spread quicker than good news um so you know quickly we said look we have to tell the people who he was closest to so you know between Stephen and I we identified probably a group of about 10 people who I think he would have classed as his family and we rung each of those to, so that they could kind of hear from us um, what happened. And then quite quickly then had to get a note out to the whole team because by that point, the news had started to spread. Journalists were contacting employees on LinkedIn, on Instagram. And so I sent a note to the whole team. Um, not the kind of thing you want to do on, on email, but equally. For a
1: thousand employees, you had no choice.
0: In, indeed. And um, we told everyone to that it was their choice go home stay and hug each other but clearly there's no expectation for anyone to do work we just need to to just digest this this news and when we're ready heal um obviously I had a three-week-old baby at that point so I was at home and again I think that was a one of the hard points around wanting to kind of be with everyone in Toronto I was at home um in the UK and just figuring out what's next you know what does this mean again for anyone who's who's been around someone with mental health challenges and especially when it ends with a death it's you just have so many what ifs like could we've done something different and again it's part of the process where we've we've spoken to multiple different people because i think we're still trying to learn i don't believe it's all good enough when people say you just have to wait until they're ready to accept help because In our case, he never accepted help. He got sectioned, I think it was three times in the UK, twice in Canada, twice in New York. And then each time he would seemingly be better within a week and and be discharged again because they would say, well, he's not at harm to himself because he wasn't someone who, you know, he didn't give an impression he was going to ever hurt himself. But they didn't see the harm you know, he'd built this business of over a 1000 employees that he was hurting, like he, he was hurting himself in other ways, even if it wasn't physically, but it didn't kind of fit the criteria of, I guess, what they would would classes as as needing help. So I think, you know, for the rest of my life, it's an area that I want to learn more about, because I just don't think that I think humans want to help, but we don't have the systems in place. And again, it's a, I know, it's a very fine balance with human rights in terms of, at what point does the control of someone else pass over to someone else and especially you know when when it's so hard I think to sometimes self-diagnose and and, and self-reflect that you might be struggling uh, with with brain health but I think it's definitely an area that I would like to learn more on um but then you know I he passed away on the Sunday and I flew uh quickly got Mila a passport within a couple of days and you know within a five days we'd flown to Toronto because it was his funeral at at the weekend and again it was a moving time um and just this this sense of just devastation sadness confusion frustration anger like just all of these emotions going around as to kind of how we got to the place where this has happened um so just yeah very deep sadness
1: and if you don't mind my asking what you think as a person you've learned through the whole experience
0: it's a difficult one to answer because I feel like I have a lot of learning to do because I still just don't understand how it happened and it it can keep me up at night just thinking and again how many other people must be suffering out there at the moment suffering themselves who are suffering from from mental health but actually the people around them as well who just feel helpless and hopeless around what do we just wait for this person to to get admitted again? And then they get better, they get out, it's the same cycle. Like I just don't, and I don't know what the answer is. I don't think any of us know what the answer is, uh, but I just think it's an area that's really misunderstood. You know, I could say there's things around myself I've learned in terms of, again, probably talking about the resilience and kind of kindness for me was a thing where, because 2018 was such an unkind year to our team, because again, not intentionally, Brandon had the best heart in the world, but he wasn't of the Brandon that we we kind of knew. So actually it was a hard time. And, you know, there was a lot of hurtful actions and words that were said to the team. Again, people in fear because of this irrational behavior. So I said, look, if there's anything we have to do at Desiem, it has to all be about kindness because these people have, you know, not everyone stayed, people chose to leave because it wasn't a very pleasant place to, to really be in 2018. But, you know, the people that have stayed with us, they have shown such loyalty, such love, such commitment. Let's be kind back and, you know, let's start to kind of build back up together and really support each other. And again, it's, I do think it's what Brandon would want. You know, he taught us so much about family and being there for each other. So it was kind of, let's just put that back into practice now. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do.
1: Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks.
0: Told by leading names in sport and beyond.
1: You know what it takes to get to the very top.
0: There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow.
1: Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. We start to create a shield because we have to, because everything's happening so fast. And so, having people who soften our hearts, <laughs> it's not the natural thing to think about, okay, I need to make sure I have people who keep me soft. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but having people who soften our hearts, I think, is what's going to keep us being heart based, like leaders, and making decisions that are for the planet and people. That was the brilliant Samantha Moyo, who is the founder of Morning Gloryville, a global movement for sober raving. You may well have been to one of their events in the past. And if you've been to any sort of sober raving event, that is the thing that she started and took global after quite a phenomenal backstory. I don't want to say any more. I'm just saying tune in or you'll miss out. We want to make this podcast as good as it can be, and we need your help to do just that. So, what do you think would make it better? What conversations should we be having that we aren't? What kind of guests would you like to see us interview that we haven't got yet? Tell us on social or email us on hello at secretleaders.com. Thanks. If you'd like to hear more leadership stories, we now send a weekly email newsletter. It takes less than a minute to read and provides some enjoyable factoids about great leaders so you can impress people with your knowledge and maybe even become a better leader yourself. You can sign up at our website, secretleaders.com. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray-Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martell with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Charlie Stopford and bringing it all together, our head of podcast, Will Stollerman.